0: I knew there was something. I I called the ambulance. And I guess what I'm trying to say is, had I just actually put him in the car myself right away? That's a horrifying thought, right? But what I did instead is I called the ambulance because I thought an ambulance knows what to do. From the Ted family of podcasts, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. On this episode, Debbie talks with designer and teacher Lori haycock macala about her partnership with her late husband, the designer P. Scott Macala, and about her own recovery from a brain injury. I still feel like I'm recovering because I still have a lot of little glips and glaps that come up. It's just part of how where you recover to or the place you go to to feel better.
1: Today's sponsor, Lexus employs engineers who describe the phenomenon that when a Lexus is truly doing its job, you don't notice most of what it's doing. Sounds a lot like what I aspire to do with visual design. For Lexus, the specifics of craft operate in the background in order to get out of the way of the emotion they are intended to evoke. Chief Designer Keoichi Suga described it as being akin to how happiness works. As humans, we aren't necessarily conscious of being happy, but we know immediately when we are unhappy. We notice the absence of happiness, not necessarily happiness itself. That kind of thoughtfulness and curiosity is what drives innovation at Lexus. Check them out at www.lexis.com curiosity. Design is generally thought of as a visual spatial discipline. Sure, there's a sound design for movies and podcasts, and there is information design, but most graphic design simply doesn't engage more than our sense of sight. What about our sense of touch, our sense of taste? our intuitive sense that there are other beating hearts out there in the world. Lori Haycock-Mackalow is a designer who is interested in involving a range of sensory experiences. Recently, she was one of six installation designers to participate in an exhibit of multi-sensory and immersive experiences at the Dallas Museum of Art. The exhibit is called Speechless, Different by Design, for which she also designed the book. Lori joins me today from her home in Carson City, Nevada, to talk about that and about her extraordinary career in design for this very special episode of Design Matters for the Bend Design Conference in Bend, Oregon. Lori Haycock-Mackala, welcome to Design Matters.
0: Hi, Debbie. Thank you. That was lovely. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank
0: you. Lori, is it true that
1: you now live next to the original Pony Express Depot? (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) Well, um, yeah, because it's a small town, so you can actually, there's a lot of um, memorials and different (laughs) things that recognize that moment. And I just think it's awesome that I'm here. I can work here, like you and I can talk, internet going, Everybody's dialed in, but I'm literally, when I think about where I am, with the Pony Express, you know, kind of started, I think, whoa, 100 years later, this is what it is. And we get to yeah. just sit and with no pants on and do this sort of thing. <laughs> Looking at the stars. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Your
1: daughter, Carmela Makala, is an up-and-coming director. And I read that she recently worked on a video for the musician Gary Clark titled, When My Train Pulls In. And she's known for her provocative work, having previously shot a steamy video for Atmospheres' Ain't Nobody. And I read (sighs) that on set, she created a unique family work ethic, bringing her vision to a high level of craft and emotional power. And I'm wondering how you influenced her work ethic, this family work ethic.
0: Oh my goodness. It's, I'm so surprised that you are mentioning that, uh, talking about my daughter, which is lovely, and my kind of family. And, um, I'll, I will tell you what's interesting. And therefore, you might want to not talk about this. <laughs> but my daughter, um, learned, yes, from her dad, super inspiring although he passed away when she was eight. Um, and the whole vibe in the family and her, uh, my nephew, uh, her uncle, Vincent Haycock, is a, is a very um, kind of a f- famous, I don't know, di- uh, film director in Los Angeles. And he was really her mentor. So it kind of went generational. Vincent studied with me when I was studying, working at Cranbrook. He learned, you know, 16-year-old kind of hanging around Cranbrook. Then my daughter was old enough, and he took her on. But the postscript to that is my daughter turns out that, um, the and this is just true confession, she's super talented, and I'm that's why I'm so moved that you brought that up. And she kind of went into L.A. and filmmaking and all that hardcore. But... Um, The LA life and the expectations in film and and all that stuff that you mentioned, like how cool is it, how hot it is, do you have the best director, do you have the best artist, do you have blah, blah, blah. blah. Uh, She was really, ultimately she just said, I don't like this. So if you ask me next why I'm in Carson City, Nevada, my daughter said, let's get out of here. We packed up, we got in a car, felt Thelma and Louise style. We went to Nevada and just started driving she met a guy in Carson city and we moved here and she just left everything. She just had a baby. She's married. She just loves it. She has nothing to do with the film world. End of story. Wow. What,
1: what an incredible story. And once I never
0: talked about it like that ever, because it is kind of like that. Wait, she like, she just said, you know what? I want to have a family and have a regular life and live in a just a mellow place and and I was well, like, well, I Boy. think it's just
1: so interesting because that family work ethic is similar to I think the family creative ethic in the way that you've reinvented and moved and had s- such different, vibrant chapters of your life, which we're going to talk about. So I oh, think it's really you. interesting. That, that is a
0: segue because it is when I saw what she was doing, she went from having a, this, when you said steamy, I like that word. She kind of had this steamy career moving and her, you know, her cousin Vince was like going, go girl, we need women in film, blah, 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 blah. And she was like, you know, I know I'm supposed to do this, but actually here's what I really want to do. Is everybody okay with that? And she said, Mom, I know you're now your 70s feminist is freaking you out. And it did because it did. And yeah. then I was like, you know what? Thank God you are choosing this other way of life that also makes sense. And Well, yeah. a 70 feminist
1: sen- set up a scenario where women should be able to choose. And yes, so exactly. And I had yeah. to
0: work myself off that cliff and say, wait, yeah. oh, wait, this uh, what is this? And I said, she said, Mom, I understand that this is kind of like counterintuitive or whatever. But family is family and getting a grip on having a, a life that you'd like. That's mm-hmm. a thing, you know, that I respect that. So, yeah, it's crazy you mentioned that. So thank you. <laughs> Lori, you grew up in Woodland Hills, California, in the San
1: Fernando Valley. Yeah, with and one of your brothers is a Zen monk. Yeah,
0: what was your childhood like? Oh, (laughs) wow, Um, you are good, dear. (laughs) Um, My brother is also a. It's a huge part of my life, and uh, because. And I've been working on a story about his life forever and called um, Monk Junk. And it's because my brother, hugely influencing because when we were younger, yeah, we lived in Woodland Hills, but in the seventies, but there was also a lot of drugs and a lot of crazy things and, you know, people wanting to get out of the valley. And my brother was sort of evolved into a very smart, um, uh, junkie. You know, he was a, he was a, A heroin addict for a really long time. And so when he, the story of how he became a monk and has now been a monk and lived in, he lived in Korea for almost 20 years and now he lives in a New York, upstate New York Zen Center, Buddhist, uh, a a Korean Zen Center for years. Um, That's a very profound influence for me. He's still the same person. And I kind of grew up with all that difference, you know, like, oh, my God, wait. And when I tell the story, yeah, my brother was a heroin addict turned Zen monk. It's crazy. It's like, well, it really is how I learned a lot about Buddhism from like front and center and a lot about um change, you know, really profound change. And um we're still in touch every day. It's not as simple as probably most people know that. Monks don't all look and sound and act alike, you know, like, oh, he's just so zen, you know, it's like, it's a practice, but it doesn't mean you're also an asshole, doesn't mean you're also weird, you know, it doesn't mean you get off the rails, you know, you're but you have to that practice. So, you know, my brother's a big part of my life. And thankfully, we're just still sharing a lot of stuff. As you were growing up, you've said that you didn't know what graphic design was.
1: But in high school, you realized you liked what the school newspaper and the magazine looked like. Yeah. Can you talk about the boy in school and his use of the word topography?
0: Uh, Yeah, I think no, and no one knew what typography, what is that? No one knew graphic design, but we were doing the paper and and at the time I took a lot of, you know, kind of. I don't know It was like, oh, I'm the youngest girl editor, you know, da-da-da. But what I just noticed is I was just really into the construction of it, what it looked like, how you brought up words and pictures and all that stuff. So anyway, yeah, this guy just said, wrote it across the thing, like a love note, you know, like, you know, your topography is so fine or whatever that, you know, something like that, you know. And it really struck me because, but, and it stuck on me and I kind of saved that thing. And I just thought, what does that really mean? Of course, the idea of it being a landscape is cool. It just feels really good. And I'm like, you know, whatever he really meant, maybe he's smarter than I thought. At the time, I remember going like, Oh, that's not. Type, you know, kind of figuring out that that's not really what he meant and going, it's okay, typography, you're dumb. not topography. Yeah, right. You dumbass. <laughs> you know, you don't know, you know, but, but also just being flattered by whatever he thought it was was something that was noticeable, you know, right. And it was just about scale. When I think about it now, I remember just, you know, those basic things creating scale, creating that pop, creating some kind of balance. And, and I also love type and I like the way words looked. And I probably, that was the beginning of that, you know. Yeah, we had And yeah, in topography. And now I still, I just like that. It's like, yeah. it is the landscape of things, you know. Yeah. Um,
1: in 1982, you went on to start an MFA at RISD, but left before you graduated.
0: How come? With respect to everyone involved, I thought it was more conservative than I imagine. And this sounds so arrogant, Now, Or I think my thoughts must have been, are now, even in retrospect, deeply arrogant. But I just thought, whoa, wait a minute, this is just not really very what's happening. And I didn't really know what was happening, but I knew it was just kind of, it just seemed old timey. And so I did, I did leave and I kind of like regret a little bit because of the arrogance, you know, and not that, it's just that. Because I think about now, as I've, been, I've taught for many years and all that, and I think, damn. <laughs> but um, I just thought, oh wait, that's not what I meant. You know, it's kind of corporate-y and logo-y and I don't know what. And I thought, I think there's more. You didn't go back to get your MFA until the early
1: 90s when you went to Cranbrook. Yeah. After leaving RISD, you began teaching at Otis College of Art and Design in Los Angeles. And it was there that you met Scott Makala and described it in the following way. One day we were standing there while critiquing a student, and I remember nothing more or less than the feeling of falling upward. He literally had a white glow around him, kind of like an energy field. He could have been a UFO for all I know, but the feeling was mutual because he actually began to talk so fast that he stuttered. I knew my life
0: had begun. Oh my goodness, you've made me cry. (laughs) Because <laughs> that that really happened like that, you know what I mean? It was yeah, was vis- so, so visceral, once
1: in a lifetime, and it's so magical. So it was really love at first sight, like just instant.
0: Yeah, wow. he, he was really special, and yeah, he was just had a, such an inner physical energy, and I other people feel that around him, you know, or when they knew he had uh, so much charisma and kind of the energy field was, (laughs) but I felt it between us and it just was instant and awesome. Yeah. April Griman
1: once described your combination as upper body, meaning you, and lower body, meaning Scott. And you've said that you always liked that description of your grafted hybrid union, but added that it also depended on where you stand. And I I wanted to know what you mean by that. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, I think that, you know, we, it's just so funny. It's just sometimes you just feel like, no, I'm going to be the dancer today. You know, I've got my hips going here or you could that's a brilliant idea. I'm going to do this. I think it can fl- I guess I meant it can flip either way. Mm-hmm. And um and maybe I was just jealous cuz he is just he was just so kind of like and when I say sexy I don't just mean in the in every ordinary way. I mean just in a thinking way. You know, just like that really? You know, just always surprising and yeah. Anyway, so the upper and lower that's funny. But I also someone recently said to me Who's, um, the, he, it's a guy who's a Democrat, but he's married to a Republican. I said, whoa, that's, that's a really weird, that must be difficult right now to even have a conversation, to watch TV together or anything. And he said, you know what? I've always believed in the two party system. And I thought, and at first I thought, wait, wait a minute, he's off topic. And then I realized he just meant even in a relationship, there is such thing as a two-party system. And Scott and I really had it. It's like, which is why when he died, I felt like it was really hard to keep doing anything. And that's my problem. But I just, the two-party thing really worked for us. And it was just so deep and inspiring and everything and then when it's gone it's like just a big dumb silence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um
1: I want to talk a little bit about more of of what you did together before he left the earth yeah. and then talk about how that happened. Yeah. When you first got together it doesn't even seem like the word crashed into each other's lives. Um you began to teach together, you started a studio together what made you decide to leave your teaching positions and go back to be taught and get your MFAs at Cranbrook?
0: Okay. So we were teaching at yeah, at Otis and also we were at CalArts and Scott wanted to go to Cranbrook. And I'm going to tell you the truth is he wanted to go. And I was like, well, I'm going too, And we have, were actually in the middle of a breakup uh, because, you know, he was very, it was very explosive and very intense to live together. This is, Just before Cranbrook. So it's like, you know what, let's just split up for a bit. His mother was sick with Alzheimer's. My mother was sick with cancer. We just kind of like split up and said, take a break. And then I heard he wanted it. He was going to go, yeah, cool, cool. But and I'm going to go to Cranbrook. (laughs) And I said, really? (laughs) Okay, me too. And then we just we just got back together and just did that, you know. We just went.
1: Oh, Lori, you're forgetting a really important part. Your mother died, and he showed up on your doorstep even when you were broken
0: up. I feel like you're like in my head. (laughs) 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 Who told you that? Did I (laughs) I tell you? That's so funny. Oh my God! No, this is when you know you one knows that your partner is like for reals, and and yeah, my and so when we broke up, it wasn't like. I'll never see you again. It was just like, oh, my God, you're so intense. You're changing my life. I don't know. Da, da, da. Just go away for a bit, you know, and you have your tra- things going with your, you know. So we, but we still kept in touch. And anyway, when my mom died, I called him and I swear he was at my door that night and he was just there. Just, hey, baby. And that's when you just know, hey, baby, (laughs) you know, that's it. And because he just knew this, that's, you know, he was there. You know, when people say, oh, you know, I'll always be there for you. And then he just was there. And that was a a different, you know, of course, when you lose your family and I'd already lost my dad and I, I would soon to lose my other brother. And I mean, a lot of things were going on, but it's like he just was waiting for, you know, when someone is, I don't mean to say vulnerable, but kind of when one is just going, oh, Lord, whatever we got going, let's just put it together right now. Yeah. And he just came. And he's a good, you know, i was, uh, now talking to you, I'm going to go, you know, he's a really good guy. <laughs> it's like he was a really good guy. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, by the end of your first year at Cranbrook, you got married. You yeah. went to the Caribbean for your honeymoon. Right before graduation, you got an interview to become the design director at the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis. Um, I read that you interviewed in a short dress with a with plastic grapes pinned to your chest while eight months pregnant. Yes, ma'am. And you were offered the job on the spot.
0: Yes, ma'am. That that was a rocking time. Yes. And um, and that was Kathy Hallbrush was is was the director of the Walker. And she is an awesome woman. And, you know, I just want to throw in that, you know, Kathy McCoy was at Cranbrook. She kind of set me up with interviewing there. And, you know, it was these are the women who inf- helped me kind of get there because that was the most awesome situation. The working environment was unbelievable. But, um, yeah, I was six months pregnant. And can you believe that? It's like. I cannot believe that happened. <laughs> you you then went to work in a beautiful
1: modern studio at the Walker hired lots of fantastic people while Scott stayed home and took care of Carmela who yeah. was just newborn at that time. That's quite progressive for that time yeah. to have a husband that would be willing to do that.
0: Yeah. And he was doing his um you know just beginning his work so he was he did the MCAD catalog during that time. So yeah, that was amazing that he did that and and, but also, I have to say, just not to, but when I think about that, because I think about, again, with my daughter wanting to be home with, you know, and all these different choices, I had an exquisite job, but also I had an income and in health care so that he could do that mm. and he could also work at home, you know. So when you think about it, it's just all these, and I say to my daughter, you know, these are choices every couple just makes. It doesn't really matter. Who does what just make these decisions and go for it? you know, and so I think it's incredible that he was the stay at home dad but he and he 's building his career, and that I had a cool job that I was able to start our family, you know, yeah, the design
1: critic and journalist Peter Hall described your time at The Walker. As one where you transformed its visual style from an unwavering adherence to the clinical international style into a remarkably flexible and unconventional approach that would set up the Walker to this day as one of the most innovative museums in terms of its design approach. Did you know you were doing that at the time? Did you just come in and shake everything up, or was it just a byproduct of your talent and and sort of a way of engaging with the museum?
0: I think it was the time, you know, and the and like having Kathy and different talents and and the openness to to try. And and I think we were just at the end of that era because the Friedmans, you know, who did that modernist were So good and so superb that it was again about that kind of cockiness to say, yeah, well, that's all great, man, that modernism, but watch this. You know, we're just going to like trash it for a bit. And I, um, so yes and no. I mean, I think we were aware that it was, there was a change. And I think Kathy, the director wanted just experimenting. So that's the opera, like to me, you know, that, and just having talent such good designers would come and because they knew they had opportunity to do really interesting things.
1: That was such an interesting time in graphic design history with the New York School and then the um, Cranbrook scro- School and the West Coast School and the Legibility Wars yes. and yeah, 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 the, yeah. the Massimo Vignelli sort of look and style versus the style of Ed yes. Fella and David Carson and Scott and you. What was it like to live through a time now looking back that you could see as a defining moment in graphic design?
0: yeah. It's isn't that crazy to think and because I I feel lucky that I kind of tapped into all I mean it's kind of like the girl at school sort of knows everybody but nobody it's like I'm really affiliated with Cranbrook but also I'm really affiliated with CalArts a little bit with Art Center a little bit with USC a little da 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 mostly west coast I guess but so I felt like I I had a lot of um cool exposure or I guess the question is yeah. Okay. Scott was rocking it. It was technology. It was all of those things that were happening at once. That was really fun. So it made it so anything was possible. It was all okay, and it's just not. I don't feel like it's like that now. I mean, I don't know what people are experiencing now, but it's like we're in another place. So it's a virtual thing, and it's a it's a whole different yeah, deal. Yeah, it'll
1: be interesting to see how design history views this time, but but certainly the idea. And uh, I was talking to Steve Heller about this this morning, um, and how you know his article "The Cult of the Ugly" yeah um, really put a pin in the map of what graphic design was then, and w- that pin will be there forever. Yeah, really highlighting a moment where how something could be viewed or read or perceived was separate from how it looked.
0: Yes. Yeah, that was really. I mean, I don't know if there's anything. I mean, now we just have different questions in the air, so it's just not like I don't really care if someone uses crazy fonts or good fonts. I mean, I use. I have an arsenal of like three fonts, and it's good enough for me. I think someone like Scott wouldn't have really. There just had to be that certain kind of little little crack in the concrete, and um, yeah. And I think when you asked me that about the Walker. I mean, it was expected at that time to just, like, make changes, get things going, da-da-da. Yeah, they you knew they
1: were hiring, right?
0: Yeah, and so it wasn't like, oh, I don't know, you know, it's like, no, the whole idea, in fact, you know, that was the the pressure of deconstructing modernism at a most exquisite modern museum that was done so beautifully in the, blah, blah, blah. all respect. It's like, you just have to go in without thinking too much. You know, otherwise it's really like, oh my God, no, I can't, you know, you just have to, and I think about when you asked me that, I think, wow, I just must've just went balls out and just said, let's go, you know, I don't know, but it was, it was cool. A
1: a typography and branding project uh, for the Walker that you created with legendary typographer Matthew Carter was added to the design collection at the Museum of Modern Art in 2011, What was it like to work with Matthew, and what was the biggest thing you learned from him?
0: Oh, my goodness. When you think about openness, now, we had an email exchange that went on for some time and talking about ideas. And when you talk about breaking down modernism, he just got it, even though he is also just an—he just has this respected, legendary view, and we evolved this concept and he just started sending us these samples of this type that you could um we call it what these serifs where you could take them on and off and you oh, could the just snap off serif. The so, what, yeah. so
1: how did that work? How did you do something that had a snap on serif? I, right, like a right. Pin, and that's like really you have to ask
0: him because it was just brilliant. And he and what it was brilliant also, we had again designers working with me who just went, Oh, I get this and they just started doing design they just started to snap on snap off and you realize to have flexibility like that it's just so natural you just think well why not <laughs> and you know um Andrew Blavell was there for some time afterwards and I, I don't know exactly if he carried on with that exact font but the spirit of that just kept going and going and going because there was so much flexibility and kind of ambiguity and and each designer was kind of responsible for you know Anything could happen with that font, and it was really fun. But you had to have really talented people who understood how to use that program. But uh, Matthew Carter would just come, come and hang out with the, everybody and talk about what he's trying, and the ideas were very collaborative. But in the end, again, it's his brilliance that went, how about like this? And then we had an open enough institution that said, yeah, we can handle that. Let's go. You know, that's rare. Yeah, really rare. You and Scott became co
1: directors of the graphic design department and designers in residence at Cranbrook in 1997 and have written about how you jammed Carmella and your books and your flat files into the car, invited a few folks who were working with you to come along and return to Cranbrook. And at that point, you said that the Art Academy looked exactly like Hogwarts School of Witchcraft. Yeah. And in what way?
0: Have you ever been there?
1: I've been, yes. You have. Yes. You know what I mean, But I haven't though. been to Hogwarts. <laughs> oh, my God. It's just so
0: magical. And to me, it's like when I when we first got there, you know that scene when you're in black, a world of black and white, and then you kind of drive up there and then everything goes in color. It felt like that. It was the Hogwarts. But it's just like it's just this very magical place because... You know, people, we live there, as you know, you know, we live there, our students live there, we live there, or I live there as students, we live there as faculty. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And you just feel like you're just, every corner is so new, like, oh, my God, I never noticed that before. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I have to say, Lori, I was there, Elliot Earls invited me to come to be an artist in residence for a few days, Mm. and I got to sit in on classes and participate in a whole bunch of events. And and I think I maybe was there for three days. And at the end of the experience, and this was probably 10, 12 years ago, I was ready to give up everything, my corporate job, my home in Manhattan, and move to Cranbrook to Michigan to go to Cranbrook and get an MFA. That's how seductive right. and charismatic and just so full of spinning atoms that yes. that place is it was unbelievable I've never had that experience before yes. I was ready and I know to, you've and been it was only, yes yeah. and i and I've been first of all I've been I've been to so many incredible schools so many incredible environments and countries and places of education and worship and I have to say that that experience at Cranbrook was the only time I was ever like I have to change my entire life right now
0: yeah It's an astounding place. It really is. And I think it's still, it can't, and to have such a small community, and when I tell people, you know, it also is not just technology and design and blah, 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 and art. It's um, craft. That foundation, it's history. Like, people forget that. that, No, that's still a real thing. Yeah, I was also struck by the... The level of trust
1: in student risk-taking, which I thought is a really important
0: attribute to foster. Well, it's almost like if you don't take a risk, you're like, you know, a wimp. You know, you just have to. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) exactly. That's what scared most people there. They'd be just like, what I knew this more as watching my students is like what was making people quiver. is like, oh, my God, I have to just be so epically amazing every day. And I was like, hey man, you have two years, just relax. (laughs) Nobody knows, nobody's gonna say anything, nobody's watching, you've got two years to figure that shit out. And that's also the beauty is just relax,
1: yeah. Back in 2017, I curated an exhibit called Text Me, How We Live in Language at the Museum of Design, Atlanta. The collection was focused on the intersection of visual imagery and language and how language is the connecting factor among the human race. It was built upon my belief that we live in and through words. We use words to express and define our reality. Somehow, by having these concrete messages in one specific place where we can all view them at the same time, maybe we'll get to enjoy that feeling of being fundamentally connected. Today's sponsor, Lexus, has a similar philosophy. One of their core practices is borrowed from the Japanese service and hospitality industry, and it is called Kigo. Kigo refers to words and phrases in the Japanese language that are used in a formal situation or that show respect and civility to each other. It's considered one of the most polite forms of communication, and Lexus wanted to apply that sense of respect when designing their cars. This is one of the many ways Lexus puts people at the center of their brand. To learn more about Lexus, visit www.lexus.com curiosity. You and Scott ran your own design studio at the same time. You called your company Pictures for Business and Culture, and you had clients like Nike and MTV really at the top of your game. Then one day, a few months after you arrived as the new designers in residence, you had a brain hemorrhage at 40 years old. (laughs) And in your book, Where Is Here?, you write this about the experience. The hemorrhage followed three sequential orgasms in the ladies' room of a trendy restaurant in Soho, New York. That moment of extreme pleasure set off a congenital time bomb. A malformation of a tiny blood vessel exploded into a pool of blood in the left front hemisphere of my brain like a gunshot inside my head. 24 hours later, I was surrounded by neurosurgeons, all surprised to see me still alive. Lori, after that experience, you've said that you could actually feel the thingness of thinking, the thingness of thinking. I'm wondering if you can share what that was like and how you were able to recover.
0: Well, okay, so... I had Scott and I had Cranbrook, and these are communities that are like, help me recover. Um, I'm just going to start there because I think in any other situation, it would have been harder. Um, Well, because the part of the brain that was damaged was the left hemisphere, and the left hemisphere has to do with language and words, and so... The day it happened, and when you have a brain hemorrhage, sometimes it doesn't just like, oh, bleh, I'm dead. It happens, and then you're just kind of tripping out, and it's slowly inside kind of blowing up. So in 24 hours, you could be dead. You're just kind of going like, okay, whoa. And then <laughs> I was doing a conference and supposed to give a talk with Scott, and, and Lorraine Wilde called me. Or something like that. And I remember realizing that I had no idea how to write her name down or understand really what she was telling me. And this is an old... Fr- you know I, you know, when you start to go, oh, I have a... Ner- uh, uh, I don't really know. You're telling me Lorraine, L-O-R-R, and I'm writing down X-Y-G-G-G-G-G. And that's when Scott was there and he was like, it's an ambulance. T-. You know, there was this whole moment of right. going... What is this? Um, anyway. So the language part was huge and, um, memory and all those things. But, you know, I did recover and I was in an environment that was allowed you to be a little bit like Cranbrook. How one thinks and does their work is <laughs> your own business. And so when I think about those days, I think, whoa. I had a little kid, I had the brain thing, I had the whole instant we just started, Scott was rocking out, he was traveling a lot, you know, he was doing his, like, um Michael Jackson thing. I mean, everything was just right, crazy. Yeah. When I think back, how we did that, I don't really know. When you asked me that, I really paused, I thought, I don't really know. I just think it was just so weird, and a lot of it just involved... Not being afraid and resting and getting used to this kind of bizarre. Slowly you recover the brain. And the reason why I kind of take a pause is because you know I had a second one and that's when she yes. hit the fan. So the yes, first one. We'll get to that. Yeah, Definitely. and the first one was really just like, oh, this is freaky <laughs> and this is really scary, but we, because I survived, you know, but I was told at the time you have a 50 50 chance of having a second brain hemorrhage. And I don't know why, but I was just like still kind of had that, we're cool. <laughs> you know, I'm good. You know, and I don't know what I thought, but I just went, carry on.
1: In in thinking about the publication of your book, Where Is Here?, which is where I read that quote from, you've said that you wished you'd focused your interest in sexuality
0: in a more direct way in making that book. How so? <laughs> i um, I think, Scott, when you talk about the desire to take risks, you know there's that, and I think how that book was constructed for better or for worse, the risks were there, but I thought that the part that people didn't really know or we weren't really going for is that, and when I say sexuality, I don't mean like weird sex, I just mean when sexuality is a big part of your life together and what you think is is good to just send out to the, <laughs> to the world as a beautiful thing. You know, like, mm-hmm. kind of like, Nick, I mean, uh, my, I just called Scott Nick. Nick is the name of my son. That was weird. But um, Scott, if he could have been like a prince guy, he'd be prince. You know, we're just, mm-hmm. yep. just let it roll. And then, and that's what I guess I meant is that it's sort of like, well, you know, we didn't just really roll out the whole, all things that, we find kind of amazing and whatever well
1: there were some really interesting images one of the images that that i was struck by um was the contribution that stefan sagmeister made which was the close-up i couldn't couldn't figure it out at first i was looking at it looking at it i'm like oh my god that's a close-up really really tight (laughs) close-up of a hanging testicle. Right. <laughs> and then of course, I was like, I wonder if it's his. And I didn't ask him. And I Well,
0: <laughs> you know, he he'll probably remember the story differently, whatever. But I just remember we were like, Savan, we're doing this book. and you contribute? Because all of these people, we just wanted contributions from all of the world, all the weird stuff that we liked and we kind of taunted him. I remember it this way, taunting him to do something completely extreme like that. And maybe Scott said, you know, just like, put your balls out, man. You know, whatever. I don't know. But something like that. Or maybe he remembers it differently. But anyway, yeah, there they were. And they're just, and of course, with Stefan's work, I don't know him well. But I, I'm assuming we don't always know if that's him or not and this and that. But it seems like, well, why not? And and I can't imagine that he, yeah. You know, why not? And I just figured, uh, thank you, you know. (laughs) Yeah, it's just the
1: one hanging testicle, very close up. You see all the little curly hairs. Yeah. I stared at it for quite some time. And just go, really what is this? And, by it. Yeah. and then you
0: get to looking at it so long, you just think it should look like that. Just one yeah. is good. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Especially once you figure it out. Yeah. Once and you then you're just out. like, "One well, yeah. is
0: fine. Thank you. It's so yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't spend I a lot think, of time looking at that. Yeah. So, I think, yeah. Scott, yeah. But I, I mean, now that I think about it, because there was just an intensity, and we haven't defined, like you say, sexuality, but there just was this almost joyfulness around it. That's that's what it was for him. And and also just kinkiness and weird. I mean, there was all that stuff that is that is fun about sex. And I think that that's why I, I thought we could have gone further in some way, you know.
1: Well, we're up to about May of 1998. Um, in, in talking about your life, Laurie. And at this point, your husband, Scott, is a media design rock star. He has spiked blonde hair, blue eyes, what's referred to as a Brad Pitt smile. He wore black jeans and black T-shirts and Oakley wraparound sunglasses. Uh, he just returned home after a month working in Brazil. His design for the opening sequence for Fight Club was in production. Spring graduation was a week away, and he had just nailed a year long contract with an international snowboarding company. Uh, you write about how at that moment you were in love and living in utopia. And then one night he goes to sleep, wakes up at three in the morning, wakes you up, and tells you he is afraid if he falls asleep, he won't wake up. And shortly thereafter, he dies. How on earth did you manage? It, it's still astounding, isn't it? <laughs> it's astounding. He had a, a, a very rare disease that caused his death, and had no, you had no knowledge that it was something that he had until it was too late.
0: Well, and actually, I don't even know if that's the disease he had. It was so kooky because at the time they were saying, oh, it's epiglottitis, it, da, da, da. But a couple of things happened. You know, he came home with a kind of a ear infection. He took some medicine. He went home, felt better after, after the medicine. We went to bed. And about three in the morning, he couldn't breathe. And I'm thinking, oh, he's got the medicine, we're good, you know, and anyway, this one thing led to, he just suddenly said, I got to take a shower, I can't, I got to, I, you know, my whole, Oh, and then all of a sudden, of course, you just like, fucking, you know, we're called, uh, call the ambulance, da-da-da-da. It was kind of chaotic, but they, the ambulance people, they kind of just hung around instead of taking him directly. It was like, oh, maybe you're just kind of this, it's kind of that, and. And believe it or not, what I've learned recently from his sister, she told me recently, she says, you know, Lori, the epiglottitis thing, that was a guess by the doctor. He was given the wrong medicine by the ambulance people on the way to the hospital. So he died on the way to the hospital. Right. And so by the t- the hospital, of course, revived him, he was all going up, but he had no brain activity for a couple of days. I, I don't really know. I honestly still don't really know what Happened, but it happened so fast. He was just saying goodnight to everybody. There's just a beautiful guy, and then it was over. Just like that.
1: You've written about how the EMT guys seemed unusually slack, you mentioned it here, um asking you questions while Scott's airway slowly closed shut. Do you think and and I I, I don't know if it's if it's wise to go down this would have yeah. could have should have path, but do you think if he had been treated differently, if they had taken him to the hospital right away, he could have
0: survived. Yeah. Yeah. That's why it's so fucked up. Yeah. yeah. And so one asked this, you know, to be honest, I have to say to myself, so wait, I was sitting there. It just seems so crazy. You know, when you're friends, like cough, cough, da, da, da. you don't think about it. I mean, I'm looking for his tennis. I'm just not thinking that this is it. I knew there was something I, I called the ambulance. And I guess what I'm trying to say is, had I just actually put him in the car myself right away? That's a horrifying thought, right? But what I did instead is I called the ambulance because I thought an ambulance knows what to do. Yeah. So, one, you know, I track back and go, whoa, that was such a nanosecond of decision making. And I thought calling the ambulance and trusting whatever was going on there was the thing to do. And I also just thought this is not. Anything extreme, even when we went to the—as he was on the way, I went in another car because they were like, we're good. You know, like, you go because you're going to want to drive him home or something like that. I don't know. And I'm thinking, yeah, I got to get his stuff so I can drive him home, you know, in two hours. You know, you're just thinking this is just a blip. Right. You just don't—you just can't even—I mean, you can't even imagine. I mean, (laughs) my—I know this isn't your quote or anything, but— my kids and I have this thing like, man, never, ever go to bed with anything else but love for the person you're with because you just don't know. And Scott and I had a lot of that. We never went to bed mad. You know, it wasn't like that. We're all like, in fact, you know, I in that story, I say. Yeah. The last thing is like, Can I have a blow job, baby? And I love that because <laughs> that is so scott. That's what I mean. It's right. like and I'm like, uh, yeah. oh, too tired. And I don't have regret for not giving that blow job. I mean a little bit, but kinda of not really. Because we had our just our fine times. You know, when you go like right. okay. And that's honestly just to I don't know, is I had a lot of love and just full imagination and gratif- everything with Scott. And that's why I, I just feel like when people say, oh, you know, do you ever want to marry again or whatever? It's like when you've had a lot of love, just solid, you're okay. You know what I mean? You don't have to yeah. search for more because that was right. a pretty solid experience, you know? Yeah. You've talked
1: about how telling stories is therapeutic, especially when it comes to grief, and have said that you've not moved on, but you moved in to your widowhood.
0: How have you done that? <laughs> well, you you are very, you probably know that I got married a second time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so Ronald, you do different, yes, Ronald Jones, and you do see that one does different things to try to get away from your widowhood and just go, mm-hmm. okay, a whole new thing. And also very intelligent, passionate person. And like, okay, let's see how this, thing fits. And the truth is there's only one time a shoe really fits really good. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a really, that was a chapter yep. The you know, the Ronald chapter was sort of like when you asked me, I thought to myself, had I just stuck with, I'm just going to stay with my widowhood, but I didn't, you know, I went, I tried to kind of Get it.
1: I think that's a way to try to soothe yourself. Yes. I mean, I, I I had a second divorce that was really really hard, and it took me five years to get over it. Really, and I I was did all sorts of terrible self-destructive things in that five years with all sorts of terrible self-destructive people, and you know, I look back at that five years and think, holy shit, was I in pain?
0: Yes, you know what? It's I appreciate you saying that because the time with ron while you know he passed away last year and so and he's a again he's a fabulous person and as a professor and all these things um but the time and stuff we lived together in stockholm and that time was really hard for a lot of reasons and uh can I stop right there? <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Hard for a lot of reasons. I was like, wait, where was I going there? <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: well, I don't know how much you want to talk about your second brain hemorrhage, but you were in Sweden working at yeah, yeah. a company. You, you were doing really extraordinary work. You were doing a lot of fine art at that point. You were doing exhibitions. And then you had another hemorrhage in the same part of the brain while you were teaching. Yeah. Um, And you said this about the experience. After that, I couldn't read or write. I didn't know the difference between the letter A and my left foot. I said tree, but I meant refrigerator. Numbers didn't make sense. Later, I learned that brain injuries like mine cause communication problems with three lyrical names, asphasia, difficulties with speech, agraphia, difficulties with writing, and alexia difficulties with reading. And you had all three. You had seizures in the street. You had brain surgery. How are you still alive?
0: Yeah, thanks. (laughs) Yeah, it is astounding that I just feel like I'm kind of poster that the brain just heals itself. It's it's it can or it can. I don't mean to sound suddenly like one of our I mean, our president going, you're just crazy. I'm I'm cured, because. <laughs> but what it is is uh, you get you learn about compensation and about patience. There's a lot of ways to compensate, but anyway. But it took me a long time. So when I don't know, I feel like I had about ten or more years of just kind of a blank spot. Wow. But my kids were also young, so I also, and I was going through a divorce. And I came back to the states, so it was kind of a very hard. Blank time, you know, in terms of, you know, when I love people professionally who can just block through their professional career, like da da da, you know, and then I did this, then I did that, and da da da, and and you know, when you have just these things that happen in your life that it's like, no, everything just has to stop, and you have to your career and all these things that you think are super important are just not right now. Um, yeah, so Sweden was where I recovered, and I I was grateful. I I did have was living with Ron, and he was very helpful, and you know because I had my kids there, and but a lot of it in Sweden. Thank you, Sweden. Um, is I was in rehabilitation for many months uh, and occupational therapy, where you you know you kind of learn things you already knew again, and I have to say I. I was very uh you know it was a really fearful time. I was afraid of just what was happening you know how how you know when you feel like you're stuck in a situation you can't how did you get here and you know whether it's a marriage or a country or a or a health problem or anything, you just feel so vulnerable and so much like. Okay, I get it. I'm starting at ground zero, but where is that ground? And I got to get out of this. I knew I needed to leave swimming. So, mean, it was very, you know, you have those times where you think, well, how did I? How did I? Yeah. You know, and I don't know if I've said this before, too, or whatever, but I would say to my brother, or my brother said to me, the Zen monk, he said, Laurie, when you left Sweden, it was like you put your son on your back and you just started swimming home. And that's true. I don't remember how I did it. I didn't have any money. I didn't have anything. The marriage, the divorce was like, dude, let's just say it's okay and bye-bye. You know, like, <laughs> you know, let's not work out the anything fine don't care, you know. And it was just, um, you know, when you just, it was starting over and I don't know what age I was, but I was definitely in my 50s. I mean, it was just like, how did I get here? And... Um, <laughs> That's my dog. I'm sorry about that. I. That's okay. Yeah, I thought I, I took I, him I for love, a long walk. I love when we, we, sh- hear, we hear dogs and cats on, okay. on the air with us. Now, this is like, you've been on the phone long enough, Mom. Um, okay, wherever we were, yeah.
1: Um, when
0: you were in the hospital, you
1: were told you couldn't run a graduate program and do numerous projects at once ever again. You were told you'd have to see yourself in a new way, and that way was slow. It was the opposite of the way you previously lived. Yeah. What were you imagining for your future? Did you think that you'd be able to recover as well as you have?
0: No, that's what I guess I was saying about fear. You know, you alternate between going, I should be able to do that and to just, uh, I just can't. I didn't have the confidence, you know. Yeah, it changed me. Because when you also, you can't trust your language, you know, and. Yeah. In a way though, it's a it's such a humbling thing. Your life has to get really simple. You know, doing one thing a day is just fine. What I've learned from occupational therapy or having a really severe brain injury is that actually one can recover but it's going to be different and and just the difference is good, you know. I mean, I I just don't need to do as many things. And also, I'm older, so, so what? You know, it's just different.
1: <laughs> I read that you were required to relearn signs and symbols, and that forced you to internalize design as a survival method.
0: And I thought that was really interesting. How, how were you able to do that? Well, don't you think that arranging things, organizing ideas, putting things in a certain way, so that you remember it or other people remember it in a way, isn't that design is i mean I think every designer don't we all talk about how design is just a way of living and a way of organizing your thinking and a way of organizing your physical space and everything, so maybe that's what I meant. <laughs> Is that because I still I feel that the better and I still when I say the better I get because I still feel like I'm recovering because I still have a lot of little glips and glaps that come up. But it's still design and having old friends like Lorraine Wilde or April Grime and, or these, you know, Callie Nikitas, these people I've known for 30 years in different ways and different times in our life. And they've been there, like, when I came back to L.A. and I really was, I was so insecure, just like, you know, can I, uh, anyway, I just felt like there was this sense of, like, the thinking is the same. I just felt like people understand that illness or change, it doesn't make you, now you're not that smart or you're not that designer or now you're not an artist. That's just kind of impossible. Maybe that's what I learned. It's like certain things that are just in your system and you've grown up with it in every which way. It's just part of how, where you recover to or the place you go to, to feel better. And I will say that there was a time where I thought, I just can't think that carefully anymore. I don't have that kind of multidisciplinary head anymore oh my god oh my god and the truth is if i just relax and take my time it's the same you don't lose whole cognitive things i mean you do a little bit here and there but i feel like i'm better in a weird way it took me 10 years 10 years whatever to say that but it's like oh if that's what it takes to slow down and um and not care like I'm sure you have certain projects that you think, Oh my God, I'm never gonna finish that or no, I'm not really capable of doing that. I'm not. Da da da. And I've come to find out through these little moments in life that, you know, Laurie, you can if you just give it time and if it takes ten years, that's okay. Just relax. And in that other part, when we started and I was telling you about my daughter, a lot of that is about speed, you know, if you're in the film industry, it's like speed and change and again and again and do it again and da da da. da. I'm like, so don't care. That you know, I live with my garden. I just live in a very different place. So, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, you're you. I can't imagine how hard you've worked to impact your healing. You're now currently teaching again for the Academy of Art University, San Francisco. You were appointed the first designer in residence at the University of Southern California, Roski School of Art and Design. And one of your most recent projects, uh, it's quite an extraordinary project, uh, was working with Sarah Schlooning. Is that right? Did I yeah. say it right? Yeah, it's hard to say, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Who was a senior curator of arts and design at the Dallas Museum of Design. And you helped create an exhibit, participated in a show, created the show's identity, and designed the exhibition book for a show titled Speechless Different by Design. Congratulations. Thank I've you. seen the work. It's magnificent. Thanks. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the show and how it, it came
0: to be? Oh dear. Yeah. I mean, that's such a beautiful example of if you just wait and be patient and the right thing comes back to you and if you're ready to grab it, you know. And I just thought I would never have that. I really didn't. I just didn't think that would happen again. But Sarah We met briefly 20 years ago at Cranbrook. She was a young curator, and I was teaching there. But she told me, when we met, I was really grieving Scott. So she said, you were just in it. She was telling me, she says, you might not remember meeting me because you were in a very deep space, you know, just a gone, gone space. But anyway, she remembers. So I bring up Cranbrook because it's those connections. It's like a family. We met 20 years ago briefly, but she called me and suggested this project and I was so still convinced that I was not ready for a complex project that I just blew it right the minute she was talking to me I was thinking not only is this the most awesome project I've ever it's like you know like you're speaking my language Uh, I was freaking out but also I was so scared that I was not really ready for it and oh my god did I even have a printer that was working right you know that type of thing that I said no and she just kept saying it's okay. Don't worry about it. You know what? Just come to Dallas and I'm, we're going to just meet with the other artists and it's going to be cool. And I w- and I literally gave her other names to say. I would send her another email saying, I don't think you heard me. I'm like saying no. <laughs> Here, check out blah, blah, blah. And I'm giving these different names. And she just kind of went, oh. Did you send me an email? What? And I realized that she just had this intuitive sense of why certain people come together to do a project, even though you don't know what the outcome's going to be. So she invited me. We got together in Dallas with the other artists. The neuroscience, she brought all these scientists that have to do with neurological thinking and difference. You know, people who don't necessarily have language skills, but they are um, highly you know, tactile or what, you know, we heard a lot of stories and a lot of information and stuff like that for a couple of days. And then I walked away from that and going, oh my God, this is the project of a lifetime for me. The
1: exhibition... It feels like it intentionally rejected the status quo. And Sarah has stated that everything that they, that you all did was about the least conventional choice. And what happens if we try not to use words? What happens if we don't do interpretive text but use pictures or videos? Yeah. What happens if we make sensory deep impression spaces? Um, you also gave the exhibition its title. Um, let's talk about the word speechless. In the exhibit book, there's a reference to a conversation with a linguist. And the linguist said, when you have a word that ends in L-E-S-S, less, that's a negative. So watch out. Um, why did you decide to use it anyway? What was your response?
0: Well, I really, re- I'll give you her name later cause, but because I super respect her. And it was just a very epic thing that she was kind of shooting off, we were shooting off ideas. And she said that, and I knew it was coming from a smart place. But I just felt like speechless is like awesome. And it felt positive. It didn't feel negative. You know, when you just know that something is like, oh, I know that's a bad name for my baby, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but it was grandma's name. And so we've got to deal with it. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's just what it's going to be. <laughs> and also because Sarah tells the story about her son who um he's uh, at the time he just didn't speak at all or and how frustrating that was and so when I said what about speechless and I was afraid that she might find it too close to the bone you know like too much like uh you know I don't want to go there but she really embraced it and she said that is it that's just let's just go speechless And I just somehow that, you know, as you know, when you name something, it gives it heft significance, right? Yeah. And it's like, you know, and then next step, you start creating its visual identity. Sarah is brilliant. And she kind of led me down that path. Like she was the sort of person who would when we started doing the design of the book cover and it was going to be for Yale and I got all tripped out thinking, oh, Yale, it's got to be this way and that way. and da and she just did that same trick that beautiful curators do. She said, oh, that's kind of big, isn't it, Lori?" And she knows that I'm just the quieter, the smaller, that just like back off. And so the cover ended up with that, just that one, you know, like the most minimal. But that was, you know, when you're working with somebody who just has really helped you kind of get to the place you were meant to be <laughs> without yes. telling you what to do, but just kind of letting you letting you kind of... Uh, well, Fall Upward is my favorite, but it's just that, am I falling up or down right now? You know, it was cool. It was but good. the book, the cover is, is it velvet? It's, um, oh, what was the name of that fabric? It's, um. it's a, it feels very velvet. It's so yeah. sumptuous and
1: sexy. No, it's I know.
0: We were working with the printers. Definitely a
1: keep it by the bed kind of book.
0: Right. And you don't have to read it. I promise you. It's just cozy. <laughs> and that was really when Sarah said to me, what do you want this book to feel like? You know, and I kept saying, I just wanted to feel like you just want to hold it and put it in bed with you and just be cozy. And when we were working with the printer, of course, you know, you get all these kind of generic stocks for covers stuff like that. And I said, "Oh, guys, you know, isn't there anything just just velvety and sexy and duh, duh, duh? and and?" They found, you know, of course, printers are just great, and they just come up with. And they went like like this, and I was like, "Yeah, like that." and 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 yeah that was really nice that that came together well congratulations that the whole project is just
1: so on point it really is it's just an absolutely gorgeous project
0: but but if i have a moment to say i don't talk about this in my talk because we wanted to keep it very precious you know about speeches but you know that that ex- exhibition was open when covid came out okay mm-hmm. so it's open. We're rocking out. We're supposed to travel to um, you know, Atlanta the Museum, yeah. right? Yeah. Everything's going on. COVID comes out and we have a show about touching and getting close to everything and like leaning in and uh so of course, not only did the museum like every other museum in the country close, but then we had to ponder like, well, is this going to travel still? What does this mean? And it's heartbreaking, really, because everything about that show, about touch, like when we talk about the book. Now, you know, it's a touch thing. But one thing Sarah kept telling me even before COVID is, um, yeah, so that exhibition won't travel. I mean, it was just kind of this shitty thing that happened where everything about what you're trying to do is that it's, you just can't. People aren't going to go in to all jam together in a place and, Anyway, but what was cool is that Sarah said to me, you know, Laurie, the thing about a book is that whatever we do in the exhibition, that's a temporary thing. It's over. She said, what matters is the book and, and the book is talk, is the process of every other, you know, the other artists and the thinking and everything like that. So after COVID, the book even became more kind of special to me because it's like, yeah, yeah, you're right. There will no, not be an exhibition, most likely, because even the things in the show— like people who design things where you a kid had to go up to that glass thing and touch it and breathe next to it and whatever, they have to redesign their work anyway, right? You know, forever. And so everybody was kind of like, "Well," um, but the book gets to stay the book, and that was kind of special. I thought, "Whoa!" Just when we just for a second there thinking that books are kind of like uh, iffy, it's like no, they count. Laurie, I want to ask you one last thing. Um, I want to
1: talk to you about the term graphic design. About 20 years ago, you stated that graphic design has always been a kind of iffy title for our discipline. As an undergraduate at Berkeley, it was called visual communications, and somehow graphic designer just meant you weren't really an artist. Graphic design seemed to mean only type an image on a flat surface preferably with a client. As technologies and intentions changed over the last 20 years, especially, graphic design has been broadened into terms like design thinking, visual storytelling, and digital humanities, and so on. What do you think of the evolution of graphic design and the work
0: that is being made now? I think the work is evolving in such a galactic speed, you know, in terms of how it's using technology and virtual experience. Reality and stuff yeah, like that. Like yeah, like my son's into virtual reality stuff like that. So I'm kind of realized that there's this whole other world that is also equal but different. Um, so anyway, I just figure that people will continue to make up new words for what it is, and I'm okay with that. Um, it's not my job anymore. You know, when you're involved in institutions, you you think it's your job to name things like that. But um, I'm pretty okay with graphic design again, which is funny after all these years, just because, you know, whatever technology we're using and whatever, it's still, certain qualities feel that way. Um, you know, I still work with words and image, but my technologies are different. Yeah. So I don't really care anymore. And I figured there's a whole other game going on that I'm not aware of. So, you know, yeah. (laughs) Lori haycock
1: Mackela, thank you for creating such beautiful, multi-sensory work. Thank you for showing us what true resilience is. And thank you for joining me on this very special episode of Design Matters for the Bend Design Conference in Bend, Oregon. Thank you very much. What a pleasure. Thank you. Lori haycock Mackle's work can be seen in the latest book she designed called Speechless, Different by Design, and it is a work of art. This is the 16th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: Design Matters is produced for the Ted family of podcasts by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.